Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is Maggie Amsler. Maggie is a marine scientist with more than 30 years of experience doing research in Antarctica. Hi Maggie, welcome to the show. Hey Allison, thanks for inviting me to be one of your guests. I'm really excited for this opportunity. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you and to catch up since the last time we were together. Um, To give our listeners a little bit of background, Maggie and I met last year, around this time actually, we went on an expedition to Antarctica together. So I had the pleasure of meeting Maggie there and uh, we got to spend five weeks aboard a research vessel together. So we definitely had some time to get to know each other, which was really great. Um, And I also got to learn from Maggie. She has a wealth of knowledge about Antarctica. She really gave me some good knowledge while we were down there. (laughs) Um, And then also on the boat, Maggie, one of my favorite memories is actually when you told me about your first time going to Antarctica, I think it was in 1979. Could you tell our listeners about that first research experience that you had in Antarctica, how it came about and and what it was like? Well, I was super, super fortunate and have continued to be fortunate throughout my life as far as Antarctica is concerned. But I knew as a freshman in college and way before that, that I wanted to study marine biology. And I was assigned a faculty advisor at my institution, DePaul University in Chicago. And the best fit faculty-wise for me was a female biologist by the name of Dr. Mary Alice McQuinney. She was one of the very first women scientists in Antarctica Oh boy, back in the 50s and 60s, before women in science were very common to begin with, much less women in Antarctica. So she was definitely a groundbreaking female in her field, much less in the field of Antarctica. And she had a very formidable presence. Most of the students were terrified of her. She was very stern, very demanding, but an incredible resource and incredible instructor. You could not help but just be captivated by her and her stories as I was when I would go in to see her once once every term. And with successive terms, she would keep me in there longer and longer, telling me more and more tales of her time in Antarctica, fascinating me with the biology of krill, which was what she studied. Eventually, I guess by my junior year in college, I started volunteering in her laboratory, and she knew I had wanted to go to graduate school, so I was putting in lots of applications. But she called me in one day my senior year and said, you know, would you consider putting off going to graduate school and staying on after you graduate and working in my laboratory and going to Antarctica with me? I was flabbergasted. 
I certainly accepted and have not regretted one day since. It was uh, really quite an honor to be asked by her, much less an honor to eventually go down to Antarctica and actually see Krill for the first time alive and all those just incredibly heady aspects for a 20-something-year-old who hadn't really traveled much beyond the Caribbean, much less south of the equator, much less to the bottom of the world. It was really quite amazing for me. I remember quite well those first months in Antarctica, my first crossing of the notorious Drake Passage, which, Allison, you might remember is kind of lumpy. You and I were on a much bigger ship than that ship that I first sailed to Antarctica on. The ship I sailed was was a double-hulled wooden ship, not an icebreaker like we were on, but the beauty of this ship called the RV Hero was that wood gives a little bit more than than steel so she could work in ice but just not break through ice and she was small enough and maneuverable enough to navigate some of the not so well charted passages in Antarctica. So it was just the utterly romantic notion of going to sea as a young woman on a large vessel like that. So you got down to Antarctica, and like you said, Dr. Mary McWinney's research focused on krill in Antarctica. Can you talk a little bit about studying that krill with her? And I know you continued on to study krill for many years. Can you talk about researching krill, what they are, and why they're important to the Antarctic marine food chain? Well, krill are what is called a keystone or a cornerstone species in the Antarctic food web. And all the science that I've done in Antarctica, whether it's krill or otherwise, is basic science just to understand what makes an organism tick and function like krill or what makes a community or an ecosystem like Antarctica in general function. So krill are just such amazing animals. They're no more than two inches long. And you can find krill anywhere in the world oceans. You can find them off San Diego. You can find them up in the Arctic. But the Antarctic krill, which was the one that I studied for many years, is only found in waters immediately around the Antarctic continent. Its scientific name is Euphausia superba. And that species name, superba, to me means, oh, of course, well, it's just the most superb of any of the 90-some krill that you can find anywhere in the world. It's also the largest of the krill anywhere in the world. And it's found in these numbers, these densities, these huge populations. Even before I went to Antarctica, I would read up on some of the early sailing expeditions to Antarctica. And there'd be these descriptions of, oh, the surface of the water turned red with the abundance of these krill. And for the first couple of years, I didn't quite see that myself. But then one year, there was a swarm of krill, and they were all at the surface. 
and it was a very small bay, and the bay was full of humpback whales who were feeding on the krill. And I couldn't believe it. The surface of the water really was discolored by all those krill. And there was all this commotion from humpbacks breaching up, lunging with full mouths of krill. It was just this feeding frenzy. And that underscored to me, one, that, boy, there really is an awful lot of krill in the Southern Ocean. And it's those huge swarms that attract the humpback whales to come down from South America to feed. Other organisms also feed and rely heavily on krill. Seabirds, and everybody's favorite Antarctic seabird, of course, is the bird that doesn't fly, but the penguin. But believe me, penguins do fly when they're in the water, especially when they're in the water and they're eating krill. They zoom around like crazy. Other organisms that feed on krill with pretty much strict obligation to krill is a type of seal called a crab eater seal. It's the most abundant seal in the world. There's some, oh, 15 million of them all around Antarctica. They're only found in Antarctica. And those crab eater seals are actually misnamed. They were hunted for many years back in the 1800s for their beautiful, shiny coat. And when they were slaughtered by the sealers, their stomachs would spill open and it looked like it was nothing but crabs, when in fact it was nothing but krill. So crab eaters should really be called krill eater seals. And they eat a lot of krill. An average crab eater will eat about 30 pounds of krill per day. And the last census of crab eater seals had 15 million individual crab eaters all eating 30 pounds of krill a day, every day of the year. That's an awful lot of krill. So the krill are just so mind-bogglingly abundant in Antarctica. And one of the early aspects of the basic biology of krill that I worked on was trying to understand how they are so productive in that environment. Krill are primarily vegetarians. They feed on diatoms and other plant particles that grow in the water column. Now, you think about plants anywhere in the world, what do they need? They need water and they need sunlight. Antarctica, being at the bottom of the world, is very light challenged. For part of the year, there's no sun. So how does an organism who depends on plants get by when there's no sunlight to make those plants happy? So a couple of times, very early on in my krill career, I went to Antarctica on a ship-based expedition like you and I were on, but we went down during the winter time to try and figure out what krill does to survive through the winter. One of the things that we found out through those cruises is that krill are very dependent on annual ice forming on the surface of the ocean. Underneath that ice is where all the plant material 
to feed the krill will be growing. So it turns out that the sea ice around Antarctica is critical for maintaining these vast populations of krill because that's where the young of the year feed during the winter time and they continue to grow and develop and mature so that in the springtime when the annual ice around Antarctica starts breaking up, sunlight starts penetrating into the water. Again, the phytoplankton and the plant material in the water start becoming more abundant. The larvae or the young of the year are ready to continue growing and becoming submature or immature adults on their own. So it's an amazingly complicated, but at the same time, very simple story. And it it underscores the need to understand an organism's function in the ecosystem and what's key to keeping that ecosystem happy and healthy. And we know now in Antarctica, for the sake of the penguins and the seals and the whales, that annual sea ice is incredibly important. And of course, that's one thing that's becoming threatened, the annual sea ice, with all the crazy changes that the globe is right now experiencing with the current climate changes that are happening. And so you figured out basically the life cycle and ecological importance of these krill in Antarctica after your years of research. And then you went on to actually start working at UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And you still currently work there as a research scientist with your husband, Chuck Amsler, also works there, and Jim McClintock, who is your principal investigator. And you transition from researching krill to studying the chemical ecology of benthic organisms, mostly plants, but also some animals in Antarctica. Can you talk a little bit about that research and working with Chuck and Jim on those projects? Sure. I like to say, Allison, that I've grown up and put down my roots and settled. Krill are a pelagic or swimming organism. So now I myself, research-wise, have settled and I work on organisms that live on the bottom of the ocean. And it's a really fascinating, fascinating area of study. It's generally called uh, chemical ecology. And the field focuses on how chemicals produced by organisms develop and maintain community dynamics. And we've chosen to study the shallow benthic environments. Benthic is a fancy term for bottom dwelling. The shallow waters around Antarctica. So we study not only invertebrates that are attached like sponges and tunicates, but we also study how algae control and contribute to the community dynamics in these shallow benthic environments. On the surface and on land, Antarctica is pretty barren. There are two land-based plants. There are no forests on land. There are no trees on land. If you want to see the forests and the trees in Antarctica, you have to put on a dry suit and get in the water. 
that's where the forests are. The algae or the seaweed, they're all the same thing in my book, are incredibly diverse. And the productivity, the biomass of the areas around Palmer Station are not unlike that of what you would find in a kelp forest. Incredibly rich and abundant and also very, very diverse environments. There'll be tall canopies of these brown algae and underneath attached to the rocky bottom, there'll be the more delicate, finely branched folios, pretty red algae, and all of these organisms, it's like there's this little symphony ongoing underwater. The algae will produce some chemicals to attract or to deter animals from feeding on them. So there's all these interactions that are going on with chemical ecology. And I sometimes feel like I'm getting adult deficit disorder because there are just so many avenues that we look at this from. I don't study one particular organism anymore like I did with krill. So we're looking at a huge range of questions and organisms, and it's so much fun. I have the best job in the world. (laughs) That's so great to hear you say that. And so with this chemical ecology research, and then I think also with your krill research previously, you dive in Antarctica. Like you said, you put on a dry suit and you get in the water to research all these animals. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of diving in Antarctica? Well, it's pretty cool diving. Um, (laughs) It's very labor intensive in a way because of all the stuff you have to put on. But, oh, Boy, once you get in the water, it is all worth it. Diving in a krill school like I did years ago was just this unbelievable experience. It was at night. There were all these blue flashes everywhere from the krill. That's how one way they communicate. Diving underneath the ice, as I've done in the winter, and seeing the little krill larvae up there feeding away, combing the surface of the ice for the plant material that we couldn't see, but they obviously could see. And the way the light would filter through that ceiling of ice over your head, sometimes you felt like you must be swimming, like I was swimming in a cathedral. The towers and the caverns and the arches were just so otherworldly. And then with the chemical ecology work we do, instead of towing a net across the bottom and raking up everything in sight, we go down and we make observations. We make very selective collections of live animals to bring back in to either run experiments in the lab or to sample for these various chemicals that we're interested in. So diving in Antarctica, it's a lot of work. Yes, it is fun, but it's a tool. It certainly does help to be able to see the communities that you're working on and to sit back and watch the interactions. Like diving anywhere, it's just such a remarkable experience. 
And so not only do you love diving in Antarctica, you also love doing some other things in Antarctica. Definitely have a lot of fun down there when you go. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you like to do in Antarctica, just immersing yourself in the environment there and taking advantage of being in this incredible place? (laughs) Well, I think that's the key to being anywhere is to take advantage of where you are and appreciate where you are. A couple of the things that I like to do aside from aside from work, which I really like to do anyway, I really enjoy going up on the glacier by myself, whether I hike up it or ski on the snow if conditions are appropriate. Once you get up on the top of the glacier, it's maybe a 20 to or half an hour walk from the station. You can't see the station. You can't hear the station. You can hear the wind. You can hear the cry of seagulls. You might hear the boom or the crack of the moving glacier, but you don't see any signs of human existence. And you suddenly feel quite small in just this remarkably vast environment. And I think it's a great perspective and a privilege to be able to experience. It makes you feel pretty small. Um, Another thing I really like to do when conditions, again, are appropriate is to sleep outside. During my krill years, I realized one year, the only time I get outside is when we go out to sea about once a month. There was this one stretch where I hadn't gotten out of the building for close to a week, and I couldn't believe it. My commute is really terrible. Um, I sleep on the third floor, and then I would roll downstairs to the second floor for breakfast and roll downstairs to the first floor to go to work and then repeat that. (laughs) And so one day I, I, I said to myself, boy, the only free time I have this season is when I'm asleep. So I thought, hey, why don't I combine the two? And ever since then, I have been trying to sleep out as much as I can. And again, it's like being up on top of the glacier during the daylight to be on outside under the stars all by yourself at night without the city lights, without much, if any, light pollution. It, too, is another amazing perspective that you have to look pretty hard I think, in this world to find something like that. So I do try and maximize where I am when I'm at Palmer Station. And that glacier that you were talking about that you go up and hike to the top of and you ski down and you sleep at the base of it when you're sleeping outside. We had many a conversation when we were together in Antarctica about that glacier that's directly behind Palmer Station, the Antarctic Research Station, and how it is receding. Every single year, the edge of that glacier recedes a few feet due to climate change. Can you talk a little bit about seeing climate change happen really before your eyes over just, you know, the short amount of time that you've been working in Antarctica? You've literally seen this glacier recede, and in many people's lives, we don't really see the effects of climate change in our day-to-day lives. So I think you've had a really unique 
perspective and seeing that. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Oh, Allison, you know, for many years when I went to Antarctica, the environment didn't look very different. My first year, the glacier face was not very far at all from what we sort of call the back door of Palmer Station. And for many years, the glacier face would change a little bit. There'd be some calving at the leading edge of it. Big ice chunks would fall in. So there'd be a new crack here or a crevice there that wasn't there the year before. But there was no dramatic sculpturing. I took some time off from Antarctica thinking that I would move on with my life. So between 1992 was my last season and 2000, I did not go to Antarctica. So when I went back in 2000, I was stunned to come around the point to see Palmer Station for the first time and to feel like I needed binoculars to see where the glacier was. It had moved so much in the 10 years that I had been away from station. And I could look at my images from my first season and my last season before that, and the change had not been so dramatic. There were not exposed rocks where there were now exposed rocks. There were not exposed islands. Now, the glacier has receded so far away from station that across the harbor, where there used to be glacier, there's now two little islands that at one time were covered over completely by ice, by the glacier. You don't expect to see glaciers move that fast in your lifetime. Yes, glaciers by nature are moving sheets of ice. They sculpt out rivers and canyons. They change landscape, but they don't do it in your lifetime. Even now when I go back every year, it's further and further and further from station. So not only does it continue to recede, the glacier, but it's receding at a more rapid rate than it has. In fact, you look at the statistics and the graphs from NOAA, and since 1971 through um, the early 2000s, there's been a huge change, an increasing change in atmospheric temperature. And atmospheric temperature is what's driving the changes in Antarctica. And that's one of the kind of sad aspects of my work in Antarctica is recognizing that it's a changing environment. And environments are supposed to change, yes, but not this dramatically, not this rapidly. And so the research that we were actually doing on the cruise that we went on together last year was actually looking at the effects of human-induced climate change on the organisms, specifically king crabs, that were living on the very, very deep sea, the bottom of the sea floor off that Antarctic peninsula. So not only is climate change affecting these glaciers that are receding and, and moving and melting, they are also affecting the 
animals that live on our planet and even the animals that are living at the bottom of the seafloor in Antarctica, one of the most remote places in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the results from that research cruise and, and the research that's gone on studying those king crabs and the other benthic organisms there? Sure. Potentially changes in water currents, especially around Antarctica, may be making it possible for the crabs to come more shallow around the Antarctic. Now, Antarctic communities like the shallow benthic ones that I study now as a chemical ecologist, one of the reasons these chemicals that organisms produce to protect themselves are so prevalent in Antarctica is because a lot of the organisms are not protected with structural defenses. Like they don't have to put out a hard shell, for instance. So you start warming up those waters. If the crabs are able to start advancing up into the shallower waters, there's concern for the organisms in those shallow waters because there's no crushing predators in Antarctica. There are no lobsters. There are no heavily jawed fish. So one of the concerns is that these crabs, if they do become more abundant and are able to come into the shallower waters, that they could really change the ecosystems, the dynamics of what's happening in the shallow benthic environments. And who knows what ramifications that will have. That was one of the rationale behind conducting those three photographic imaging surveys that you and I have been privileged to be part of. And so have we found crabs that are actually moving up that continental slope of Antarctica and moving into some of those shallower, warmer waters? Well, we haven't found them in the very shallow reaches. Honestly, it will probably be a good long time, I'm hoping, <laughs> um, before they are able to conquer something like uh, walking up to the intertidal area in Palmer Station. But it's not beyond the, the realm of possibility and adaptability for Mother Nature. The shallowest we saw a crab, I think, was 400 meters, with the majority of them being as deep as 800 meters at the shallowest of its distribution. So there's still a long way down, but there is concern that a population could become established. And so with all this really important and incredible research that you've done in Antarctica over the last 30 or so years, you and your husband, Chuck Amsler, have actually had an island just off of Palmer Station named after you. It's called Amsler Island. We got to see it when I was there. And can you talk a little bit about how that came to be, the designation process of Amsler Island and, and what it means to you? The way that that process happens is it's through the National Board of Geographics in Washington, D.C., People can put in a recommendation for something in Antarctica to be named for this scientist or that scientist. So it's very much sort of a, a nomination privilege. And that's how our 
Island was named that somebody somewhere out there put in a recommendation that we should have something named for us. So it's a very humbling event in one's life. You don't normally think of having something named in your honor, at least while you're alive. (laughs) So it's amazing that our peers have recognized our contribution to Antarctic science. Well, I think that is so exciting. And and like you said, it must be very humbling, but also really rewarding to know that your research has been so influential that they named an island after you. So I want to thank you, Maggie, for all the great research that you've done in Antarctica and for sharing it with so many people over the years, including myself. Um, And I'd also like to thank you for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, Allison, it's been great talking with you as well. And I'm, I'm really impressed by the work that you've been doing with your ocean podcast and uh, hope you continue on with your passion as it takes you to a new ocean. Great. Well, for our listeners, I will link to UAB in Antarctica. That's University of Alabama, Birmingham in Antarctica. That's their website where uh, they document all of Maggie and Chuck's and Jim's Antarctic research that goes on. So you can learn more about their research there. I will link to that on my website once this podcast goes live. And I will also link to uh, the the documentary film that I produced last year about the cruise that Maggie and I went on um, all about the king crab research. So you can see Maggie in that. I interviewed her for that (laughs) film as well. So I'll link to those on my website and you guys can check it out, learn more about Maggie and all the great things that she's doing. And uh, Maggie, again, thank you so much for creating positive change for the ocean. All right. Well, thank you, Allison, for, for promoting our work. Appreciate it. You just heard Maggie Amsler, marine scientist with more than 30 years of experience doing research in Antarctica. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at alisonrandolph.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.